I want to talk about the structure of the way we approach these conversations. And what this is all based on, as we've talked about Cornelius Van Til, and we've talked about presuppositionalism, we've made the argument against neutrality, we've, we've committed ourselves to the supremacy of Scripture in these discussions. And so as we think now about, okay, I believe all that, now what am I going to say? <laughs> Before we get to the sentences we can say, We've got to wrap our mind around the ideas, where we're trying to go. What are we trying to accomplish in order to honor God in our faith conversations and to, humanly speaking, give ourselves an opportunity for success in these conversations. And the, the big picture tactic that might be new to you, so I'm going to introduce it and then we'll apply it, so to speak, is something that uh, philosophers and theologians call the transcendental argument. (laughs) So think about what I said last week and the week before. Uh, Unless a person thinks like a Christian, he cannot make sense out of anything at all. That's, that's the fundamental truth here. They might think they can make sense of the world. In fact, the entire deceived world, for the most part, walks around thinking they've made sense of the world. But what scripture teaches us is that it's not possible. Through common grace, they can know some truths, but they cannot live consistently, not even with the truths they know. Because it's not possible to make sense out of reality apart from Christianity, apart from God's truth. Christianity alone provides the necessary foundation for knowledge, for rationality. If, you know, if we say, I know A, B, and C are true, and because they are true, I live... X, Y, and Z, because that makes sense given A, B, and C, right? It's the, I don't want to burn my hand, therefore I don't touch stoves. What do I know? I know stoves are hot, and if I touch them, they will burn my hand. That is a truth that I know. And because I know that truth, I choose not to touch hot stoves. That's living consistently with the truth that I know. Unbelievers can by common grace know some of the ABCs. They can't know them all. Some of the ones that they think they're sure about, they're the most wrong about. And they, even knowing what they know, they cannot apply it consistently, and they do not apply it consistently. It's the effect of the fall. It's the effect of sin. It's their sin nature pulling them in other directions. It's what we call the noetic effect of sin, the effect that the fall has on our minds where we don't reason correctly. Even given all the right facts, we still can draw the wrong conclusions because our minds are broken. We've got some short short circuits in here from the fall. So what this transcendental argument is about is arguing that What the unbeliever believes, we'll call them A prime, B prime, and C prime, because some of them may be true, but they're not all true, and there's a bunch of truths that they're missing. What they believe 
ultimately destroys all meaning. (laughs) It ultimately destroys the possibility of meaning and intelligence and, and knowledge. Because if you try to take what they believe... ABC prime and apply it consistent consistently what do you end up with that way lies madness if you took what they believed what they are certain is true and applied it consistently you would end up at madness incomprehensible contradictory madness and only if they have a Christian worldview can they escape this madness. And so what you are showing them in a transcendental argument is that way lies madness. Here's what you believe. Let's apply that to the world. Let's look at how you apply that to your own life. And let me show you how inconsistent and irrational it is. The things you do violate the things that you say are true. The things you say you believe. That's a transcendental argument. And only Christianity can possibly prevent this. So this has both a negative and a positive component. And this is really tactically the foundation for the presuppositional approach, which we'll get into in just a minute. But this has a positive and negative component. The negative component is showing that the unbeliever's worldview will reduce to absolute absurdity. That if, if, if I say, okay, Mr. Unbeliever, let's take all of your truth and let's write them down and let's look at how a person should live on the basis of that truth, that way of living is absurd. We both recognize no one would live that way. And part of how we recognize it is you don't even live that way. You say you believe these things, but you don't live that way because you recognize, just like I do, that it is absurd. That's the negative argument. And then the positive argument is, let me show you the ABC, the truths of the Christian worldview. Let me show you what that would look like consistently applied. And oh, look, it makes sense. It can be done. It provides a basis for rationality, for living in a way that is doable and that makes sense. And you can do that argument however many times you need to do it. Because when they say, okay, well, that, the, the one I gave you, okay, that's not true, but, but Buddhism's true. Let's do it. Let's go through the ABC prime of Buddhism. And let's do the exact same experiment. Let's do it with Islam. Let's do it with atheism. Let's do it with agnosticism. Let's do it with any worldview you want to construct. And it will always turn out the same. When I show you the facts, the truths of that worldview and what it would look like to live and apply those consistently, we will both agree, if we're honest, this is absurd. And that's why nobody does it. And then what that leads you to is, well, what on this side of the ledger, the how we live, okay, I've said no matter what they believe, 
they don't actually live the absurdity that's on this side. They live some level of rationality and something that makes sense. So even though they're not acknowledging that they believe it, what are they having to actually believe in order to live that way? And when you go back across, oh, it's all these things that belong exclusively to Christianity. They're borrowing all these truths from Christianity so that they can live lives that are something other than absurd. And just think through. This makes perfect sense. Most of the unbelievers you know, when you think about the lives they live, they don't live lives that are absurd. They, they, they have some, some sense of morality. I'm not going to kill my neighbor and take their sofa. I'm not going, right? They have uh, uh, abuse against children is wrong. That's how most of the world lives. But their view can't explain why they don't abuse more children. Their view gives them no reason for why they don't kill their neighbor and take their sofa. And the reason that they're not killing their neighbor and taking their sofa, the reason that they're not abusing more children, is that even though they don't want to admit it, they're borrowing something that you can only get from Christianity. They're stealing our truths into their worldview. Because the rare people in this world who don't do that, and I mean majority don't do that, everybody does it 1 or 2%, but let's say, the, the, the rare people in this world that really live consistently within a non-Christian worldview, we look at their lives. In fact, even unbelievers look at those people's lives and say, that's nuts. That's absolutely nuts. Elon Musk saying that we live in a simulation, that we're in a video game, somebody else's alien video game. He's actually living more consistently with his facts than most people are. And what's the result? He's nuts. (laughs) People who have absolutely no morality. People who think you can do anything you want. You can kill anybody you want. You can do anything you want with a child. We look at those people and we say, that's nuts. Even unbelievers look at those people and say, it's nuts. So most people don't do that. Most people don't live the absurd existence that their worldview requires. And what that allows for is this transcendental argument where we can say, hey, let's do that. Let's play the worldview game and see who's actually living the way their truths say they should. So the idea that we will refer to time and time again is called antithesis which is just the contrast between A and A prime or between A and X. It's it's the antithesis. You say this is true, but you don't live as if that is true. You say this is true, but here's what's actually true. And by the way we live, we're both showing that's the case. There is an irreconcilable contrast between Christianity and all other worldviews. Because Christianity says it is exclusive. It says it is all-encompassing. God doesn't say, here's truth, and Christianity is truth, but Buddhism has this, and Islam has that, and... No, no, no. Christianity is true. And those other views... 
are completely outside of it. They are completely apart. And the only reason that they have any truth whatsoever is not that they're a part of us or that they have this overlap. It's that they stole it. It's that they stole it. They came in and said, my worldview doesn't make any sense without C prime. I need that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it over here. And so Christianity, and think back to what part of our critique was with some of the other approaches to faith conversations, is that Christianity states its meaning in absolutes. Not probabilities, not possibilities, not this is the most likely scenario or the most rational scenario. This is truth, full stop. And so any argument that suggests you get people to the Christian truth by ultimately persuading them that it is more rational than the other views sort of missed the mark. It is more rational than the other views because it's the only rational view. It is more truthful than the other views because it's the only true view. And so this antithesis is really significant. I've tried as much as I can to avoid and skip the philosophical terms in this class and replace them with human speak. Uh, both not, not, not just for your sake, but for mine. I drastically prefer them. But there is one philosophical term that I need to use because I don't know an alternative to it. And the concept is so important. Preconditions of intelligibility. What must I believe in order to have anything make sense on the other side of this diagram? What has to be over here in order to have anything other than absurdity come out the other end? So you think back, some of the examples we used over the last few weeks. When I communicate in a lecture-style class with speech, I have a huge number of preconditions of intelligibility on, on my worldview. I believe that the ideas that are in my head can come out through sound waves. You can receive those sound waves process those sound waves and there is some level of correspondence between the idea that was in my head and the idea that is now in yours. That it's clear from the expressions on people's faces that when I say something, you get some idea in your brain. But it's a huge leap to get from there to this idea that the idea you got in your brain is pretty correspondent to the idea I had in mind. That when we both look at the marker color and I say I use the blue marker, think of all the preconditions required for that that we just take for granted. That what we process and we see, and some of these examples, you get good counterexamples. Like with colorblind people, you see, oh, that system breaks down, right? Um, Preconditions of intelligibility. What are the truths that must be present in my worldview in order to have anything other than absurdity 
come out on the other side. Think, think about the scientific method. What's the practice? You make a hypothesis, and then you prove it. How do you prove it? By do, testing it over and over again. Right? You make a hypothesis, you control the environment, you test it over and over again, and then you're able to draw conclusions. What are the preconditions of intelligibility necessary for the scientific method to produce something other than absurdity? That the fact that I repeat an experiment and get the same outcome means anything. The idea that I can control the environment because the world can be understood in certain ways. I can measure the barometric pressure. I can measure the volume of the chemicals I'm using or the amount of light. And I can control those to repeat something. The idea that anything is repeatable is inconsistent with the fact that we live in a fundamentally random and disordered universe. If we live in a random and disordered universe, science makes no sense. Why in the world would you do an experiment? You can't repeat it. You can fool yourself into thinking you repeat it, but you don't know if just three times in a row the random collection of atoms decided to assemble themselves in the same way. You, you, I know this is, this is not a low theological concept, so pat yourself on the back when it starts to make sense to you. But this is a really important one. The scientific method makes no sense unless you have a precondition of intelligibility that says the world's understandable. The sun that came up yesterday will come up tomorrow. Let's figure out why. <laughs> well, why bother figuring out why? If it's just random. You don't know anything you think you know if we live in a random, disordered universe. And so the scientists, who are the ones who say, trust the science, we live in a random, disordered universe, have a bunch of facts over here that they stole from us. Because if you applied their worldview consistently, they wouldn't do anything that they do. They would do nothing. And so the reason why they do have a little bit of truth, science tells us a lot that's true. This whole earth revolving around the sun thing, gravity, theory of relativity, these are truths. But they're truths that have as their precondition the very things that the scientists are denying. The very things that they're saying are not true. That's preconditions of intelligibility. And so any winning position... When, when what we're doing is we're saying, okay, here's the facts of the worldview, here's the application of the worldview, the position that wins is the one that gives us something other than madness, something other than absurdity. Any worldview that's going to win has to account for all of these. It has to account for these preconditions of intelligibility. It can't just assume them. Because you've told me, I can't just assume ultimate beings. But wait, you are assuming the intelligibility of the universe. Uh, so any winning position has to justify those. It can't just borrow them. The laws of lot what we were just talking about, by the way, is called the uniformity of nature. I was avoiding that term. But if you want to know it, it's the uniformity of nature. The idea that things are understandable and repeatable and predictable and that science makes sense because nature is uniform. Another thing in this category are the laws of logic. A cannot equal 
not A. <laughs> if you are A, you can't be B. You're A. <laughs> right? What's that called? The law of non-contradiction. I can't be two opposite things. <laughs> I am one of the thing, but if I am that thing, I am not also its opposite. I can be a lot of things, but I can't be any things that contradict things that I am. <laughs> That's a fundamental law of logic. Something that is cannot also be what it is not. Well, justify that. Well, sure. I mean, God is that he is. And he created what is. And his rationality informs the rationality of this universe. And he explains to us the difference between there was nothing and there was. And he makes those distinct. Right? Okay. Now justify the law of non-contradiction from a non-Christian worldview. You can't. We'll get there later. But you can't. But that's why the very rare person that denies the law of non-contradiction and lives consistently with that view, everybody else in the world, Christian or not, looks at and goes, that guy's nuts. (laughs) That guy's nuts. You can't be and not be. And so even though people live as if this were true, they don't have any facts on this side of the ledger to justify it. They stole it from us. They stole it from Christianity. Moral absolutes. Everyone believes in moral absolutes. The 0.01% of the world's population who consistently do not believe in moral absolutes are nuts. Usually in an asylum somewhere, and if not, certainly in prison or hopefully put to death. People who tell you there's no moral absolutes, they claim on this side of the ledger, no, no, there's no moral absolute, still aren't killing their neighbor to take their sofa. And if you raped and murdered their kid, they would not feel like you did nothing wrong. Right? If you say there's no moral absolutes, then I can rape and murder your kid. And I'm purposefully thinking of the most horrific thing I can imagine. Because how many people do you know? How many unbelievers do you know that would say to you, yeah, there are no moral absolutes. That's true for you. It's good for you. It's, you know, there's no absolute. And yet, if you said, okay, I'd like to come over this afternoon and rape and murder your child, would say, yeah, that makes sense. You don't know any. I hope. <laughs> you don't know any. Because nobody wants to live consistent with, consistently with that absurdity. And so they have to borrow from ours. Oh, oh okay, well, there, I mean, there's some moral absolutes. And usually, what are they? They're the ones that hurt them. What they mean is, there's no moral absolutes that control their behavior. They want lots of moral absolutes that control your behavior. In fact, you saying that there are moral absolutes is a moral abomination to them. (laughs) They borrow from the worldview. 
So the things that you have to have on this side of the ledger in order to have knowledge, in order to have a rational system of thought, are things like the laws of logic, the uniformity of nature, and moral absolutes. And they're the very things that no other worldview can explain or make any sense out of. They can't justify having them. And so we need to leverage that. That's what we're pointing out in these arguments. In this transcendental argument, we're saying you don't live consistently with what you say you believe because if you did, that would be madness. And it gives us an an opportunity to be gracious because we're not saying, I demand that you live consistently with what you believe. We're saying, I'm so thankful you don't live consistently with what you believe. But don't you want to believe things that give your life meaning? Wouldn't you like to know why you do what you do and think what you think and want what you want? This is the point of contact that we have to leverage. And Scripture says that we have this great advantage that whether they acknowledge it or not, they know God. And because they know God, we can leverage that point into this one. We can leverage the absurdity of their worldview and their awareness of God into a, here's how God makes all that make sense. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They're without excuse. The world that has been made makes God known to them. They can deny it all they want, but... If they will stop denying it for a moment and look at the world the way they're already claiming to look at the world, which is rationally, they will see, oh, God made himself pretty clear. Who's got Romans 2, 14 and 15? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. We can leverage their own lived experience. Isn't that the phrase today? People's lived experience? We can leverage their own lived experience. Why does your heart cry out for what is right? Why did your heart break when you saw on the news the story of somebody else's child who was raped and murdered? Because God wrote his law on the hearts of every people that he made. Why does your conscience cry out against you when you cheat on your spouse, when you do something you know you should not do? Because your worldview says you should be free. There's no moral absolutes. Don't feel bad about that. You can do whatever you want. But that's not your lived experience. Your lived experience is not, whenever I do what I want, I feel great about it. My lived experience is, whenever I do what I want, I feel great about it until I don't. (laughs) And my conscience condemns me. Why? Make your worldview explain your own experience. And it can't. And so these points of contact are really 
really significant. Now, I will say just as one caveat in closing, we have to be very careful in these discussions to sprinkle the discussion with the humility of our own inconsistency. We cannot let them think for one second that we think we apply our own worldview consistently. We need them to understand that that is the worldview that if it were applied consistently gives life perfect meaning. (laughs) And the reason why our consciences, even as believers, still cry out against us, the reason why we still have times of darkness are because we in the world around us doesn't live consistently with what God has declared to be true. So it's not a I'm better than you transcendental argument. It's a God's worldview is better than what you say you believe. I'm trying to live that worldview and I fail a lot. But I will tell you, by God's grace and spirit, when I succeed, it's transformative. It gives life purpose and meaning and joy and satisfaction. And you look at a situation where you say, there is no way a person could have peace in that situation. And yet I have peace in that situation because of what's over here in my worldview column that God says is true. And you look at a situation and you say, there's no reason a person should persevere in that situation. They should just give up and curse God and die. And the reason that I don't and the reason that I didn't and the joy of not doing that is because of what God says is true and is in this column. That's what you're showing people. And so your worldview is the most arrogant thing in the world. (laughs) Because your worldview says it contains all truth. And any other truth that anybody else has, it stole it. That is the most arrogant point of view in the world. Make sure that that claim is made on behalf of your worldview, God's truth, and not your life. (laughs) Not you. (laughs) Because that's a really easy way, not just to offend somebody unnecessarily, but to lose. You'll lose the argument. If instead of looking to God's truth to provide sense and meaning, you look to Andrew's life. You look to Paul's life. That way lies madness, right? And what in my life is not madness? What is worthy of imitation? What is praiseworthy? What you should follow? And there are things, all kidding aside, there are things in my life you should follow, many of them. But they're not because Paul's life. They're because God's truth. That, that's the game changer. So we got to be really humble. And next week we'll unpack the steps of the positive argument and the steps of the negative argument, but the humility has to be sprinkled throughout.